Our scripture today comes from Psalm 91. And we find these words. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For God will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. God will cover you with her pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. God's faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them and I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. And with long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. These are our sacred stories. And a little preface which is to say, I think I know why Laura, our proper minister, may have invited me to proclaim today. I think it's all those metaphors. I am an English professor, so I'm not uniquely qualified, but I'm well qualified. Um, but also, um, in my talk at my husband's memorial service over three years ago, I pondered the idea of dwelling. And I think today's lectionary advances that image of God as a dwelling place. So, for whatever reason, here I am. <laughs> um, the working title of my memoir, In Progress, One Woman Show, is meant to be a pun on the comedy genre and on my widowhood. I'd taken a few levels of improv over the years with a vague yet kind of earnest goal that I would do stand-up one day. However, <laughs> I since became aware of two serious drawbacks to that plan. One, I don't really know stand-up that well, um, mostly because I can't stay up that late. <laughs> um, as a teenager in Chicago, I, I saw some Second City shows, and then I watched a handful of Netflix specials, and of course, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but that hardly confers expertise. Um, secondly, my target audience um, consists of folks who, at midnight, are more likely waking up to go to the bathroom than they are ordering a drink at a club. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> so, I don't know, I think maybe the church circuit is my best bet. But anyway, last year I was confessing to my, um, I was confessing my stand-up career's cratering before it even started, and one of my improv teachers, Eureka, and he said, what you're talking about sounds like a one-woman show, which I guess you don't have to stay up late to do. So, and, um, until very recently, the chair of a large academic department, and still the mother of three children, 
who then lived in three different time zones, my life felt like one big one-woman show. A title was born, and now some chapters. Chapter one, something is missing. My dear friend Nair had a son, Armin, and at 20, he sat on railroad tracks and was killed. I should have given a bigger warning, sorry. On my visit with her a few months afterwards, she described herself as a pearl necklace whose string had snapped, sending the pearls scattering across the floor. And translating her feelings from her native Farsi, Nair painted in beautifully accented English so vividly that I pictured the snap actually happening. I was sitting on her deck holding her hand and I saw pearls scatter. I felt a panic that I couldn't stop it from happening. In my mind, a few rolled down into a crack and vanished. Some scuttled under the couch to lie with dust and sand. I thought a lone pearl might resurface one day in her dustpan unexpectedly. Many, Nair said, she scooped up and salvaged. Her life in grief was this. I restrung the recovered pearls, she said, but you know, some I will never find again. There's no jewelry repair shop for this. Her life, the necklace, was still beautiful, and still is, and full, with parts missing and a new clasp. And clasp we do after a loss. That might be the first thing we seek. Closure, security, certitude. We want to protect our remaining pearls. You probably have your own metaphors, too of dark days that loom low like clouds that never quite burst into the rain, a sudden memory flash that shocks the senses like the lights coming on after a movie, of seeking solitude like a snail, of training a wild hawk of grief. Images and metaphors that surface in dreams and nightmares or that knock around your head in the course of a day. Helen MacDonald in Aches for Hawk, a memoir about her avoiding and facing um, her uh, the grief over her father's sudden death. She captures the experience as vividly as Nair's necklace, but in a very different register. The anger was vast and it came out of nowhere. It was the rage of something not fitting, the frustration of trying to put something in a box that is slightly too small. You try moving the shape around in the hope that some angle will make it fit. Slowly comes the apprehension that this might not, after all, be possible. And finally, you know it won't fit. No, there is no way it can fit. But this doesn't stop you using brute force to crush it, punishing the bloody thing for not fitting properly. That was what it was like. But I was the box. I was the thing that didn't fit, and I was the person smashing it over and over again with bruised and bleeding hands. And of course, there's also the literal, the raw, unspeakable condition of grief. No metaphor for that. As many people say in the early moments after a death, I have no words. There are no words. And there may be no apt analogy for the work we do to put ourselves back together with parts missing and some that don't fit. 
but we do speak and write and sing because it's worth exploring words that might come close, that sit beside the pre-verbal and create pictures that have the chance to communicate and hence connect. Another thing that went missing because of pre, for me, was focus. I had a feeling of disorganization. I felt more prone to distraction. That started for me in menopause. When one day I found myself literally, and again, remember, I'm an English professor, I know how to use literally. <laughs> I was literally spinning around in my kitchen with a plate of food in one hand, my day planner in another hand, and I'm pretty sure a third hand held a nest of scorpions. And I couldn't figure out what to pick up, put down, do, prioritize. After Reagan died in those early days, I'd be writing and I'd zip over to the Oxford English Dictionary, as I did this morning, <laughs> to check an etymology or to find a recipe I might make or not. Or uh, uh. We all do it. For some, we might be working on a problem, but then it's Facebook or Instagram. Some urge. Oliver Berkman, in his wonderful 2021 book, 4,000 Weeks, which is the number of weeks most of us can plan to live, by the way. He says that we use distraction and the to-do list to dodge the challenges of deep meaning. Distractions lead us away from what my college philosophy professor, Father J.J. Lakers, used to call ever-deepening intimacy with ourselves and in our relationships, and for him, even with God. We avoid sometimes the gnarly intellectual or personal problem that we could probably resolve if we only stuck it out a bit longer. Berkman and Father JJ call us to face the hard work with the patience required to move from the snappy into the challenging but meaningful experiences. A quick internet search or popping up to make tea these moves foreclose our attention to the deep, the gnarl, the hard. My therapist, the aptly named Felix, <laughs> told me then, um, your life as you knew it fell apart. Because I was like, I can't think straight. <laughs> no wonder, he said, you feel distracted and disorganized. It's not unusual for grief to recur even after you've gone beyond the initial shock. What you have to do is acknowledge those feelings, then you can more easily reorder your life. By the way, my next project, if the One Woman Show gig falls through, is to develop the technology to clone Felix <laughs> and sell it. I'd be very wealthy. Um, but anyway, um, I thought it was just me, but it is the human condition, this distraction, and grief, and menopause, and smartphones and COVID fog make it worse. But thankfully, we have each other and our Felixes, our books, and covenant to hold the space to be with it, to sit still. Put the scorpion nest down. <laughs> the psalm today urges trust in God. It says, if you, trust the, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come to your tent. This sure seems like a promise of no disaster, and all you have to do is say, the Lord is my refuge. 
But in these parts, i.e. this place, um, we don't, we believe these stories are sacred, but not literally true. And you might remember literally from my last page. <laughs> God's refuge is no guarantee against harm, loss, or disaster. Of course not. We will experience all these. As another book I read says, grief is not something you get through. It's something you carry. And this is a refuge. Another metaphor. Grief is a heavy load, like a dream deferred that sags, a failure, a burden. Yet, grief can also be the light jacket that you towed around just in case, something useful at the ready, a note in your wallet that you practically forgot about. Two of my picks for the great American novel, in case you're wondering, <laughs> are The Things They Carry by Tim O'Brien and Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. In these novels, the characters are defined in part by what's in their backpacks or briefcase. They're literal objects, paper, letters, weapons, and of course, the symbolic weight of being a soldier in Vietnam, in the one case, and being black in America in the other. And some of the soldiers, I think, are black as well, I'd say. Um, what do you carry? What is your refuge? Some days, my grief is, is slight and private as a compact that I can snap open and shut with no one even knowing. Some days, though, it is a wobbly-wheeled, overstuffed, suitcase and I'm dragging around a busy airport, fury and shame battling it out in my blushing cheeks. I yank it hard the way a bad human yanks at a reluctant dog and I'm half apologetically looking at all the people who are judging me because I brought too much stuff um, and or pitying me and I think yeah sorry I know it's broken I gotta get the wheel fixed but I do have a lot of stuff I like my stuff I'm a Grief, it's Nair's necklace, lighter by a scant pearl or two, a slender release like a spy would carry, but heavy with secrets, a load. Emily Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers. We might say, grief is the thing with handles. And my hair is falling out of this thing, but oh well, that's okay. Chapter two, something's wrong. A moment ago, I alluded to Langston Hughes's unforgettable poem, unforgettable image in his poem Harlem, that asks and proposes questions to the oh, asks and asks and proposes answers to the question, "What happens to a dream deferred?" And I know many of you know it by heart. Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? In another year, when the trauma of being non-white in our society is better known to our general society, this old poem still obtains. Hughes never settles on a single image here, but uses or and maybe to limb the range of tragic results of dreams unfulfilled. His similes build from a slow degradation of a raisin in the sun, not a grave, notice, to an explosion. And that's the thing about my loss as a privileged white woman. It's dwarfed by the outrageous suffering around us. My grief sometimes feels indulgent. Do you sometimes feel guilty at times about mourning your personal loss 
in this age that is teeming with sorrow and anger for each day's grim milestones, for our nation's enduring racism, for the displaced people who flee their countries and the things they carry are the clothes on their backs and their babies. One thing the pandemic has taught us um, is that you never know what people are carrying around with them. May our own grief make us more compassionate and less apt to judge others. In working out what I wanted to say today, I realized that one woman's show is really a misnomer. At least it's not the whole story. It is true that I was alone in the deep freeze, rustling old bed sheets around my legustrum, um, dripping with icy raindrops and self-pity with no heat inside. But it is also true that my great friend Elaine came over to salvage my frozen food before it went bad and made a giant batch of chili. Elaine is my refuge. No harm can come, no harm came to my tent. And you are my refuge too. I've been given such shelter that all humans deserve, that we should give each other whenever we can. Such meaningful human connection threads through each image, from Nair's pearls to the poetry, fiction, and memoir, and imagine and express grief at a personal, national, and global scale. And even working out what a psalm's feathers means as a church and on my own, this act of faith and intellect is its own refuge. May it be so.